In this episode of Influencers, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander and author of To Risk It All, Admiral James Stavridis. Vladimir Zelensky has really risked it all. You know, when he looks over his shoulder, he sees his wife, his children, his parents, his elders, his civilization, his cities, his language. That's the ultimate game of risk. We had to celebrate service because service is nonpartisan. I have always felt that that act of self-education, of picking up a book, of diving into it, of learning from it, of active learning, it is crucial. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Admiral James Stervides, who is a former NATO Supreme Allied Commander and author of a new book, To Risk It All. Admiral, welcome. Thanks, Andy. Good to be with you. So a lot to talk about here. I, I guess I want to start off in asking you about Russia and its invasion of Ukraine and where things stand and, and frankly, how you see the war ending, if I can even ask it that way. Sure. In the book, uh, To Risk It All, we're examining decision makers under extreme stress. And we've got two of them here, right? Vladimir Putin has rolled the dice on a massive invasion of Ukraine and come up way short. Um, his objective was to conquer 100% of the country. He went into it, by the way, already in command, if you will, of 15%. He's only managed to add 5% to that. He now controls about 20% of Ukraine. That's a failing grade. That's kind of where it is right now on the Russian side, despite their efforts to kind of grind out a little more territory. On the other side, Vladimir Zelensky has really risked it all. You know, when he looks over his shoulder, he sees his wife, his children, his parents, his elders, his civilization, his cities, his language. That's the ultimate game of risk. And he is leveraging all this support from the West and doing, frankly, a pretty good job holding the Russians relatively static. They've had a few gains in the Southeast. So that's the current state of play in the how does it end category. I'll give you three words, no good options. And I wish there were a better uh, frame to provide, but uh, I think where this thing is going to go over the next three to five months a grinding war in the southeast neither side really achieving any breakout result putin's burn rate you know business term alert here his burn rate if he were a corporation is pretty bad he's losing a lot of people a lot of material and a lot of support throughout the world war crimes being revealed his burn rate's bad you know, I always say Ger General Sherman in the Civil War said war is hell. It's also expensive. And his burn rate is such that by the end of the year, he almost certainly will be looking for a negotiation. On the other side of that line, Zelensky probably will be looking for a negotiation. They're going to come at it from very different uh, negotiating points. Again, this is a kind of a classic business case study. Uh, on the one hand, Putin is going to want to consolidate his control over that 20% and have an armistice. Zelensky's stated goal is to push Russia entirely out of Ukraine. Will that succeed militarily? Boy, that's, a, that's going to be a real challenge. 
that'll be the position as they go to the negotiating table. How the deal ends up, I would guess to conclude here, um, it'll look a lot like the end of the Korean War. There'll be a permanent state of war, exactly as there is between North and South Korea. There'll be occasional military flare-ups, exactly as there is on the Korean Peninsula. There'll be an armistice line that's agreed between the two warring sides. Uh, it'll be heavily armed and fortified. And I think that probably comes into focus toward the end of this year. I'd say that's a two and three estimate of how this thing could end. Well, wow, I've never heard that uh, Korean Peninsula metaphor before, Admiral, and that is disconcerting, but um, quick, quick responses, I guess it makes sense. How do you assess the U.S.'s response to this uh, very difficult situation? It's very easy, of course, to do Monday morning quarterbacking real time, uh, second guessing of President Biden and his administration. But is there are there things they could have done better or what would you have done? Let's um, first and foremost make your point. Hindsight is a pretty easy skill to employ here. Uh, and, and by the way, let's not park on the Biden administration. Let's go back to the Obama administration when I was Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, uh, 2009, um, when the first invasion unfolds, um, we should have done even more then not brought them into NATO, but already loaded them up with the javelins, the stingers, get all the material in there. We did a reasonable job of training their forces from 2009, uh, excuse me, 2014, that second invasion, I should say. Um, we did a reasonable job from 2014 to the present of training them, but even in 2013, 2014, we saw this coming, should have pre-positioned military term that equipment forward. Um, so that is sort of a, a challenge both for the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and even the Biden administration could have jumped sooner. Having said all that, uh, if I were going to categorize the U.S. response, I think it's a successful just-in-time effort, meaning that um, if we had not gotten the, the weapons in the hands of the Ukrainians, the intelligence, the cybersecurity, the javelins, the stingers, if we had not gotten it there basically exactly when we did in the December, January timeframe, I think Putin might have had the opportunity to take the whole country. So overall, there's plenty of um, plenty of look back and criticize to go around here on both sides of the aisle. But let's keep the ball on the field where it is right now. I think the administration's doing a very good job getting weapons into the hands of the Ukrainians so they can continue to hold the fight establish a good negotiating position, hopefully get us toward a conclusion, again, perhaps toward the end of this year. And of course, you've heard Putin threatening or pushing back about the U.S. in particular, uh, supporting with more weapons. How dangerous is this situation in terms of it escalating and expanding the conflict that being? Anytime you have two nuclear armed superpowers contending um, you ought to be concerned. Um, however, let's keep it in perspective. That's the exact situation we had for decades during the Cold War. Closest we came to war, 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was really very close. Um, fortunately, we got through that. Um, there are a couple other examples of proxy conflicts where there were challenges along the road. 
Um, and, and now we're in yet another version of that. So point one would be history shows us that we can tragically for the nations involved be involved in these proxy conflicts without US, Russia, or in those days, Soviet Union going to war. History is actually relatively reassuring on this point. And then second point, I know, and you know, and, and most people know, the United States is not going to attack Russia or use a nuclear weapon. So we're really talking about whether Putin wants to attack the West, attack NATO, or use a nuke. Bottom line, and here you're in the realm of supposition, but my analysis is that he will not. Um, Putin likes his life. He's got a wife that he, ex-wife that he kind of gets along with. He's got mistresses. He's got children, both acknowledged and unacknowledged, that he seems to have real affection for. And I'll give him this. He loves his country. He deeply loves Russia. He knows attacking the United States will lead to an apocalyptic series of events that will only in the end, destroy his country and parts of our country and parts of the world. He's not reaching for the lever to the apocalypse. Could he use a tactical nuke? I suppose you could roll out a scenario. I don't think so. I think the opprobrium of the international community would overwhelm any advantage that he could gain from using it. So bottom line, while we ought to be mindful of the risks and we don't want to be deliberately provocative, this is why we don't have a NATO no-fly zone, we don't have NATO troops, US troops in Ukraine, our warships are not challenging the Russians in the Black Sea. You can make a case for all that, by the way, but we're, I think, managing this problem fairly sensibly between the rocks and the shoals, if you'll permit me a nautical metaphor. Uh, on, one, on one hand, a nuclear conflict with Russia, on the other hand, simply letting Vladimir Putin have his way with Ukraine. We're keeping the ship in the channel, we would say in the Navy. And that I think is about where it needs to be. I guess given the circumstances, that's somewhat comforting, Admiral. And I, I do want to jump on uh, your nautical tact, if you will. Um, and you mentioned the Black Sea. There's Russia's blocking Ukrainian wheat from being exported, which is per perhaps exacerbating a um, food crisis or precipitating one. There's a lot of talk of an incipient food crisis, I guess. Should the U.S. Navy get involved in securing grain and other types of food shipments out of Ukrainian ports, um, given everything that's going on? Yeah, this is a classic example of risk analysis. And in the book, To Risk It All, we look at some scenarios. Um, in this scenario, I would say it's time to consider it. And I'll tell you why. Um, first and foremost, your point, um, we are edging into serious global food security issues. And that's not just a humanitarian concern. Um, that can lead to uh, civil unrest, waves of refugees, particularly in North Africa and the Middle East are very pragmatic reasons for us to avoid that, as well as the obvious and, and overarching one of avoiding uh, humans starving to death. That grain needs to get out of Ukraine. It's not gonna go by land. There's too much of it. You gotta move bulk things in the world, in the world trade, 95% of global trade moves by the sea. So point one is we need it. Point two is this blockade is illegal. And by the way, it's not being conducted in Russian territorial seas. This blockade 
is, is blockading Ukrainian waters and international waters. United States and all of our allies, we have a vested interest in keeping those high seas freedoms. So you could conduct a, um, an, a maritime escort operation to get the grain out going through strictly Ukrainian and international waters. Is it provocative to Russia? I suppose. On the other hand, it's not like we're sailing ships into Russian waters, uh, lifting a blockade that is effectively in Russian territorial seas. And then third and finally, Andy, there's historical precedents for this going back to the mid 1980s when the United States escorted oil tankers in and out of the Strait of Hormuz because the Iranians threatened to close them. Young Lieutenant Stavridis was part of that operation. Was it high risk? Yes. Was it risking at all? No, I don't think so. I think it was an acceptable level of risk. And I would argue we are certainly very close to the point where we have got to get the grain out and this is a viable way to do so. That's fascinating. And it does pertain to the book, uh, To Risk It All. And I know you guys probably did game theory stuff like this when you were at the Fletcher School at Tufts, but maybe can you take us inside what, what really is going on in the Pentagon um, supposition perhaps a little bit because you're not sitting in the room anymore, but are these kinds of conversations going on in theory that, well, if we did this, Putin's Navy might respond this way. Is, are those the kinds of things that are actually being discussed, do you think? Um, indeed, they are. And um, I'll tell you how it would go down. Um, the president, should he decide this is an option he would want to explore, he'd turn to his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, and say, Jake, get the Pentagon to show us what this would look like. Jake would call my very good friend and contemporary general, former general, now Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, ask Secretary Austin, develop these options. Then it would go to the joint staff, which is a hand-picked group of super talented officers. These men and women would you know, start spending Friday night there ordering pizzas in and working on these plans. And it would start with, okay, how many mines are in the water already? How do we get rid of the mine threat? Um, mm -hmm. Where are those minesweepers going to come from? Then it would be, okay, who will participate with us in this exercise? Will we ask NATO to do it? Will we do it ourselves? Will we ask the United Nations to do it? Number three would be, how are we going to inform Russia? What are the legal mechanisms we're going to use here? Fourth would be strategic communications. How are we going to portray this to the world. Then you get down to the granular decisions. Okay, these are the six destroyers that we're gonna move there. Four will come from Rota, Spain. Two will come from Norfolk, Virginia. These are the tankers we're gonna bring to replenish them. You'd build that whole plan. Then you'd go over to the White House and brief it. And the president would make a decision as to whether this was a go or a no-go decision. I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect that set of conversations is happening at some level at this moment. Well, that was that was just fascinating. And, you know, these kinds of times in history where things get to the brink, Cuban Missile Crisis, Berlin Airlift, what you were talking about in the Straits of Hormuz, that is high risk, but high return when you sort of stare your adversary in the face and someone blinks, right? That's exactly right, Andy. And, um, you know, the trick is knowing, and you never know with certainty, but the trick is 
doing the preparation, gathering the intelligence, using cyber to find out what your opponent is thinking about, um, consulting with your allies. I always say the South Koreans have forgotten more about Kim Jong-un to the North than we're ever gonna understand. Consult with your allies, look at all the instruments of national power. Don't think it just has to be military. For example, in the example we're just using, how do you bring Secretary Blinken and the whole diplomatic piece on board? How do you bring Secretary uh, Janet Yellen and the whole economic piece on board? How do you create that coherent strategy? If you do those things well, your chances when you hit that moment of risk are that your opponent is the one who blinks because you've prepared better. Another follow-up to this, what about the private sector? Would it ever be appropriate, particularly in an instance like this or with oil, but here with food, we we're talking about grains. You talk to the people at Cargill, Archer, Daniel, Midland, those kinds of companies. Does that ever happen and would that be appropriate? It happens constantly. And I'll give you a very practical example from my years as Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. We had a terrible problem off the coast of East Africa. Pirates, piracy, constant. Many of your viewers will have seen the excellent film Captain Phillips about the capture of one of these, uh, of one merchant captain, Richard Phillips, from the Merced, Alabama, by a group of Somali pirates and is rescued by the United States Navy. In fact, it's one of the case studies I use in the book to risk it all. Um, we talk about the high risk of rescuing Captain Phillips to his life but also to all of these elements of piracy. So did the private public question you asked in those years, I was in constant communication with the global shipping companies, constant talking to all of the owners and was able to use, by the way, the International Maritime Organization, IMO in London as a convener to bring these shipping companies together because a lot of the solutions in that case were in the hands of the private sector security on the ships, sailing in convoys, uh, routing these convoys, providing intelligence from the sea back to national authorities. Um, so yes, there is enormous scope for working with the private sector. And I think the food crisis is a pretty good example of that. Really interesting stuff. Let me ask you about to risk it all a little bit more. You've written a number of books why write this one? Uh, what are you trying to say? I mean, I appreciate there's there are a lot of cool naval stories in it. You've got nine naval heroes, yeah. a lot of familiar names, uh, Farragut, Jones, Decatur, and then some modern names that are more or that are less familiar, I should say, that are really kind of interesting, real discovery there. Who's the audience here, Admiral? The audience is everybody. And the, the point of this book is to use storytelling to help people prepare for a moment of extreme crisis in their lives. And that can come often when you least expect it, perhaps in one of these horrible active shooter scenarios. Perhaps you're on a beach this summer, somebody is drowning and there's no lifeguard because there's a national shortage of lifeguards this summer. You're a pretty good swimmer. What do you do? Um, perhaps you are in an ATV, an all-terrain vehicle, and up ahead of you, another ATV goes rolling down the side of a cliff, kind of crashes on the bottom. You see people clearly in extreme distress. Are you gonna call 911? I hope so. 
but are you going to go down? Are you going to make your way down that very steep cliff, not without risk, to try and render what first aid you can? There's no right answer to these scenarios, but a book like To Risk It All uses the frame of these naval individuals to help us think about how to prepare for that moment when it comes. So really, the audience is everyone. Let me ask you a little bit about our current political and social environment, Admiral. I mean, you spent a lot of time in Annapolis, Washington, D.C., um, you know, in the deep state, if you will, blue states. You're now in Texas, which is a red state as a military person. You're certainly familiar with that kind of thinking, both sides of the aisle. Why are we so divided up and what can we do about that? Um, we are very, very polarized. And I think there are a number of reasons for that, which have been reasonably well unpackaged. Part of it, of course, is the way in which the internet has allowed groups to coalesce at the extremes, enabled their uh, working together in ways that perhaps were not available to them in a pre-internet age, our differentiated media that allows people to go into their own left and right echo chambers, be that MSNBC on one side, Fox on the other, even more extreme outlets on either side. And by the way, I'm a centrist. I'm a registered independent, always have been. I was vetted for vice president by Hillary Clinton, one of six people actually vetted for the campaign. And I was called to Trump Tower to discuss a cabinet post by Donald Trump. I'm a centrist. Want to make that point up front? Yes, we are deeply divided. I'll give you three practical things we should be thinking about to try and get ourselves out of this dark forest that we've wandered into. Uh, number one is service, celebrating service, incentivizing service. And I don't mean simply to military people, thank you for your service. That's very kind. I'm talking service in the broadest sense. We ought to be incentivizing and celebrating our police, our firemen, certainly our military, our diplomats, our teachers, our doctors and nurses on the front lines of COVID. We had to celebrate service because service is nonpartisan, service is bipartisan, if you will. Number two, education. We put one of these supercomputers in the hands of a nine and a half year old on average in the United States today, but we don't give them any education. We don't tell them how to differentiate fact and fiction and kind of in between. These are teachable items. We need better education and it goes all the way up to the idea of better apprenticeship programs so that we can address how um, Americans can find their way to a working wage, a positive middle-class experience, perhaps without going off to college. Our educational system needs an overhaul. That can help us address some of the inequalities in our society that are driving us apart. And third and finally, Andy, you know, dare I say it, it's the good old fashioned ballot box. Um, I think as voters, we had to be looking at candidates, Republicans, Democrats, take your pick, but those who can reach across aisles and work with others. I spent five years in Massachusetts, arguably the most liberal state in the country, yet the governor is a Republican, Charlie Baker. Um, there are people in both parties on both sides of the aisle who wanna work together and reach across aisles. I would say as voters, we had to try and find those people and bring them forward. There's three ideas, but boy, is this a big topic and, and, and in many ways, our greatest challenge in America today. 
sort of extending uh, this line of inquiry, Admiral, what about our reputation overseas? Mm -hmm. And I was just in Europe. Um, you're so familiar with these conversations going over there and people asking you as an American and you in particular as a military leader, what's going on in America? Are things getting better there? Are you guys still a leader of the free world? What is your take on that? Um, what is hurting us in the international world are a variety of things that are all over the internet, all over national and international television. And they range from the attack on the US Capitol. And again, I, I say this not as a Republican or a Democrat, as a centrist, think about how that's received overseas, those images. Um, these mass shootings again and again and again, Think of how that is received overseas. And it is very difficult when we send our Secretary of State abroad, be it Mike Pompeo or Tony Blinken, pick your party, for them to explain events like that in a coherent way. It hurts us internationally. Having said that, yes, the United States is still widely respected. And I'll tell you why. It's because despite all of the challenges, I just mentioned a couple of them, when you look at the hand of cards the United States has, it's pretty damn good. Um, look at our geography. We're a vast continental state, huge oceans on both sides that protect us, benign neighbors, north and south. We have the best universities in the world. Um, we have incredible innovation. Our businesses are spinning off the world. Elon Musk came here from South Africa. Um, immigration helps us. Everywhere I went as a military officer, as a four star, I'd pay a courtesy call on the ambassador. And every embassy I went to, 150 embassies over a decade, every single one, there were lines around the block of people who want to come to the United States of America. We have vast natural resources, abundant fresh water, huge agrarian powerhouse. We were talking about grain a few moments ago. I could go on and on. You, you get the idea. We have this very, very capable hand of cards. I think there are a few big nations that would hesitate one second before changing places with the United States in terms of that hand of cards. The question is, Andy, how do we play that hand of cards? There we have some work to do as you and I have been discussing. Maybe all that leads to my next question, Admiral. And to me, this is one of the, the vexing, if not the single most vexing questions of our time, at least when it comes to um, the globe, and that is globalism. And since World War II, we've been on this inexorable path towards globalism until recently. And now we're seeing that revert nationalism, nationalistic leaders, uh, the end of supply chain and perhaps in part because of COVID. But I'm wondering if you think that this end of globalism is just a pause or whether it's something more than that. I definitely think it is a pause and it is not more than that. And, and again, here, let, let's look at the long sweep of history. And we don't have to go back, you know, a thousand years ago into the dark ages or 2000 years ago to the ancient uh, Greeks. Let's just go back 100 years ago and kind of compare um, the state of the world then and the state of the world now. 
um, there was no concept of anything remotely resembling what we have today in terms of an interconnected global economy. Um, and, and that nascent globalization, which kind of existed a little bit in the immediate years before World War I, World War I crushes that. Um, that's when nations really get nationalistic, erect trade barriers, Holly smoot tariffs. You can drop a plumb line from those decisions to the global depression, you know, with that D, depression, and the rise of fascism in the Second World War. So that, you know, that's our history. We, we then create the idea of a global economy coming out of the Second World War, and it's been basically full speed ahead since then. I see nothing that is going to take us all the way back. What I do see is there'll be some rewiring, notably in energy markets, probably somewhat as we've been discussing in agrarian products. There'll be more onshoring and, if you will, friend shoring. There'll be some geopolitical bleed into the, the systems, particularly for electronics, medical devices. But there's not, my view, going to be a huge change in who's making shoes and distributing them globally, um, who's making wooden fences, who's making children's toys. Um, that's going to continue. I don't see anything um, in the offing that would that cause me to back away from the idea of globalization, broadly speaking. So again, you know, life is kind of compared to what? And yeah, we're on a bit of a pause here, I think, for a variety of reasons, as we mentioned. But if you look at the long throw of human history, we've come a, a very great distance. And I don't see anything to suggest, oops, that globalization's all wrong. We're going to go backwards. I don't see it. Just to wrap things up here, Admiral, I, I want to ask you about you a little bit. What do you think led to your success? Um, and what would you tell young people who are starting out in life? And how should they take a look at how to manage their lives and their careers? What a nice question. Um, first of all, if the question is what led to my success, part of it is the lucky accident of my birth to two wonderful parents who gave me comfort and always believed in me. And, uh, you know, I had a very close knit Greek American family. So part of it is just luck. But then comes the hard part. And this is where advice comes because you don't get to pick where you're born or who your parents are. Um, number one for me, and this may or may not surprise you, has been reading. Reading. I have always felt that that act of self-education, of picking up a book, of diving into it, of learning from it, of active learning it is crucial. And I think it's somewhat undervalued in today's world. So I'd, I'd put that up there. Uh, number two is I've always tried to work well with my peers. And, and what I mean by that is I think everybody kind of gets it. You got to you know, serve up. You got to make your chain of command happy and, and be loyal and please your boss. Got it. And I think the light has come on for most leaders, you know, take care of your people, make sure they're fulfilled. I, I think we all get that. But in terms of a place we are underweight, I think many leaders are underweight in their peer networks. And part of that is because people are ambitious they don't want to reveal their vulnerabilities and insecurities to their peers. Listen, 
your peers know you better than anybody else. Your peers can save you. And in the course of my career, in many of my failures um, and my moments of crisis, it was uh, my peers who came and helped me and gave me good advice. I think that's a, a crucial part of success is that peer network. And then third and finally, I think innovation. And what I mean by that is um, simply back to the title of the book, to risk it all, you have to take risk. You have to recognize an innovation that, you know, you're going to fail three out of four times. And you, I think so often, uh, and another word for this may be resilience in the face of innovation failure, but that nexus of being unafraid to try something, to take risk, to recognize you will fail, to have the resilience to go on to the next product. I think those are three things that have stood me in good stead throughout my career, in which I, I freely say, you know, I was Supreme Allied Commander of NATO and Dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and I'm currently the Vice Chairman of the Carlisle Group. Um, I'll go back where I started, paragraph one, a lot of it is luck. And um, if, if the three tips I give you of reading, peer network, and innovation, um, those I hope will help others as well. What a nice question. Thank you. Well, I think you made your own luck more than a little. Thank you so much, Admiral James Stravides, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander and author of the new book, To Risk It All. Thank you so much for your time, Admiral. Thanks, Andy. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Serwer.